From Mississippi to New Mexico, Massachusetts to Oregon, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the influence of both the U.S. and Chinese governments on big tech platforms will be the subject of congressional investigations. Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University is here with details. Rule changes won during the fight over the U.S. House Speakership brought about one of the biggest conservative victories in decades. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The recent battle to elect a Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives was less about Kevin McCarthy than about giving individual members more input. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI means for the first time in a decade, there is no question as to who is in charge. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The Twitter files have aggravated concerns about government influence over social media platforms. Now a congressional subcommittee will investigate. Will Reinhardt is a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. He joins us now with details. Will, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Well, there has been a lot of concern, growing concern, over the weaponization of the federal government, the federal bureaucracy against political and ideological opponents. Can you talk just for a minute or so about that threat and how concerned should we be? The big threat seems to have come, or at least seems to have been revealed recently with a a series of posts that are being called generally the the Twitter files. So just, just quickly by way of background, when Elon Musk took over, it seems it took over Twitter. It seems he kind of realized there was a lot that was going in the background, a lot that was going on, kind of behind the scenes that people were not all that aware of. And so he's worked with a, a you know a couple of journalists that have have unveiled a whole bunch of new information, new revelations about about these relationships that Twitter has on content moderation and a whole bunch of other things. But one of the big things for me, and one of the most important areas that I've really been watching, is this relationship between. The national security apparatuses, the FBI and and Twitter, and and we now have a good sense, or at least we have a better sense, right? That that the FBI has been going to Twitter and telling them, you know, you should take down this content and these pieces of content. You know, for for the most part, I mean, at least in the past, there was the sense that most of this content that they were dealing with was terrorism or was something that was related to terrorism or an illegal act. But what the Twitter files really revealed was that they're doing far more than just stuff related to illegal acts or terrorism that it seems that they're actually trying to stifle some some people like they're they're trying to get rid of some voices on the platform and we now have a better sense that that the FBI seems to be a lot more involved in Twitter but also probably TikTok they probably have a direct line to them as well they probably also have a direct line to YouTube so what we're realizing is that there is a much deeper relationship between the FBI, particularly, and these platforms than we ever understood before. 
As this continues to evolve and more information coming out, certainly the Twitter files have lit a fire under it, Will. We now have we now have the United States House of Representatives. It's under Republican control. We finally have a new Speaker of the House. Yeah. That means yep. we're going to have committees and subcommittees. I understand that there's going to be a specific subcommittee focused on this issue. Can you tell us a bit about the committee? The new committee that's going to be developed now is is really on on China and it's it's really on China threats in particular. The Select Committee on China is replacing what was the Climate Action Committee, I believe. I forget exactly the name, but it was it was on climate issues that the that the Dems put together last Congress. So this Congress, the Republicans have said, yeah, we want to go after China, and in particular, we we're really interested in trying to understand the threats that that China poses. It came out of committee really strongly. You know, the, it, I think it was three hundred and sixty some reps said yes, and only about sixty five said no. So. I think what we're seeing actually is a pretty strong bipartisan understanding that we need to deal with China in some way or another. And and I'm actually really happy that they're they're doing this select committee on China. There's a lot of threats that, that exist. I think it's not the people of China. It really is the government of China that, that worries me a lot. And especially with its one party rule and its its rule under Xi, that there, there's a lot of very serious concerns about about China. Um, especially moving forward in the next 10, 20 years, as it slows down in growth and as its population slows down, there's a whole bunch of things that I think are going to be presenting very serious national security concerns for the United States. Is there a concern that TikTok and some of these other platforms are, in fact, really part of a spy apparatus? Yeah, this is something that, that, that you're you're hitting the nail on on the head here. It's it's really this big question that we are still trying to understand better. We do obviously know that TikTok does have a pretty cozy relationship with the the, the Chinese government. You know, obviously the, the the company is is based in in Beijing. It's it's domiciled in Beijing, and I think that what we're trying to understand now, and there's a whole bunch of kind of concurrent investigations. There's actually an investigation by the FBI that's being conducted, and by the Department of Justice, they're doing a project together that that they're actually looking at the at TikTok to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. But I think that people just want to know. I mean, there's a there's a lot of concerns on whether or not there is information flows from TikTok app into the Chinese government. I'm a little less concerned with those things because, broadly speaking, a lot of this information is already available. I mean, if, if the Chinese government really did want to buy information that, that TikTok could provide, they could probably already go and buy that on through a whole bunch of data brokers and a whole bunch of the the, the information ecosystem that already exists. So I'm, I'm not as worried about that as much as I am about this broader concern that, that the company itself is is potentially spying on individuals and, and hearing into conversations. I think that's been a big concern as well. So the, the data stuff, I think, is a little bit different than the conversational angle, which it's kind of splitting hairs. But to me, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what's going on. And I think that everyone is really, really interested to see what's going on actually behind the scenes. Will this committee or another committee be looking into the domestic aspect of this, particularly the, the FBI weaponization, et cetera, that we discussed a bit earlier? Yes. So so separate from the select committee on, on China, which obviously is going to probably be dealing with some of these broader technological issues and these broader tech issues, the, the House Oversight Committee is also going to be looking at at what's happening with the FBI. And I know this is a broader concern, basically, in, in all aspects of, of the, the current housework. And, and they sent off a whole bunch of um, requests for information recently about Biden. I, I know that the administration, or at least there's been revelations recently, that there was national security documents that were located during the Obama administration when Biden was the vice president. 
So there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think that is going on concurrently that we're going to see the House interested in. And the Speaker and a lot of the leaders in the House have said very clearly that they're interested in oversight and they're interested in, in investigations. As much as this is happening and as much as there are concerns about China and also China and also the Biden administration and the kind of cozy relationship between the FBI and, and all these platforms, the other thing that they're going to be doing is looking at oversight for all the money that just went out through the infrastructure bill and the, and the uh, Inflation and Justice Act. And so all of the other stuff that we've spent a whole bunch of money on, that's going to be kind of the thing that I'm going to be really focused on. And it's probably not going to get as much news and attention, but I think it's going to be far more critical to ensuring that the money that, that we're being taxed and that we're spending is actually going to the right places and helping the people and doing the best that it can. We have been talking with Will Reinhardt. He is a senior research fellow with the Center for Growth and Opportunity, that at Utah State University. Will, tell us a bit about the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Also, where on the web can folks go to read more? Center for Growth and Opportunity is, is based at Utah State University. We're an economic research group that primarily focuses on three areas. We're, we're interested in immigration, environment, and energy. And then I work primarily on tech and innovation issues. We have a whole bunch of students. We work very closely with them and, and try to, to teach them how to understand public policy. And we're a uh, kind of a small group, but I think that we really punch above our weight. And you can find all of our work on the web at thecgo.org. And you can find me on Twitter at Will Reinhardt. Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Will, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. It has been an interesting couple of weeks under the Capitol Dome in Washington as Republicans take control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Here to talk about all the maneuvering is Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, good to have you back with us. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. We saw a lengthy, rather drawn-out fight for the House Speakership, Scott, and there were 20 Republicans who really stood tall. And it's important, I think, for folks to understand that this wasn't about personality. There were certain principles and rules at stake, but they held out through the whole process and ultimately prevailed. Do you want to talk a bit about what it took politically for these 20 to stick together and accomplish this? It starts with the House Freedom Caucus's chairman, Scott Perry, he and his team presented a bunch of reforms and ideas, changes to the, the way that the House operates and the rules, all the way back in July. And McCarthy basically ignored that rollout. And then later in September, they said, hey, you know, we're, we're actually pretty serious about this. We, we want to get back to making sure that there's a functioning House that empowers all members, not just the leadership or the chairman. And I think McCarthy basically discounted a lot of their ideas because he was expecting a large Republican wave. But when we only had a five-seat majority in the House of Representatives, it actually empowered the House conservatives to extract many changes to get the House working again. And one of those big changes is basically allowing for open rules in all the major legislation. That means Every member has the ability to offer amendments that are consistent with the purpose and the subject of the legislation. You can't offer like a pro-life amendment to a gun bill, right? Or you can't offer a bill that would increase the debt limit to another bill that is related to transgenders. But the bottom line is that they wanted to make sure that when we're dealing with the debt limit, 
that if people have ideas on how we should cut cut spending, they should be able to offer those amendments and have them fully debated and considered in the House of Representatives. This is schoolhouse rocks. This is how the House is supposed to operate. And I think what unfolded in the House of Representatives with all those ballots that everybody kind of tuned in and and watched when we elected a speaker is worth understanding how the 20 went from sort of being a sideshow to changing the way that the U.S. government's going to really be operating for the next two years at minimum, and hopefully for the next generation, because we think that this is really the largest conservative victory in, in a generation. And I think people like Scott Perry and Lauren Boebert and Eli Crane and Josh Burkeen and all these new members that are, are coming forward and they have a, an appetite to change business as usual, it's something to actually get pretty excited about if you're a part of that conservative activist base. So we have this great victory in terms of rule changes. How is this going to translate, Scott, into, say, the budget and debt limit and all those sorts of things, which have really been out of control now for decades? Yeah, well, the... House Democrats had a, an old rule activated recently called the Gephardt Rule after Dick Gephardt. And what that did was it, it would increase the debt limit if the House just passed a budget resolution. And so that wasn't really transparent to the American people how we were going about increasing the debt limit. And Republicans rolled back that provision, and they've also now uh, have a, 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 an agreement on freezing federal spending and ensuring that we get to a a path to balance within 10 years. Now, it's difficult when you have such large deficits to cut federal spending that much, but we also are collecting record levels of revenue right now. And so I think it's important for folks to understand basically what we're, we're proposing here is a freeze on federal spending for the defense component of the budget, the things that deal with our national security and military readiness. And then on the non-defense side, we're only going back to FY 2019, which is just a few years ago, those spending levels that were already incredibly high and enormous. But But if you can set spending at those levels and keep them there for 10 years, you can achieve balance. So I think that what you'll see now are a lot of members that are going to be interested in fighting on the looming debt limit increase. We project that that will occur probably at the end of July when when members head into the August recess. And in the interim period, uh, I'm going to bring something back up from all the way back in 2011 when the Tea Party movement advocated for an idea called cut, cap, and balance. And what the idea is, is to cut federal spending. We talked about that just a second ago to cap federal spending, meaning we're not going to spend more than a certain amount, and also to balance the budget. And that's, uh, I think, pretty clean messaging that helps folks understand how we got to where we are, why inflation is a real problem and a threat to our national security, how we're going to prioritize spending for things that are constitutional, and how we're going to actually start to cut spending with some of the Biden stimulus funds, with the bipartisan infrastructure stuff, and also with excessive emergency spending related to the coronavirus pandemic. Scott, in the aftermath of the speaker fight, of course, the left and the legacy news media is portraying Republicans as being hopelessly divided, a fractious group. Is that really true? Well, Loman, I don't think it is, because when you look at the final vote, all the Republicans 
voted for Kevin McCarthy or voted present. None of the final six voted for another person, and that was actually what gave Kevin McCarthy the ability to lock in the votes to become Speaker. And so nobody in the Republican conference can say that they voted against Kevin McCarthy on that last ballot. Six voted present, and everybody else voted for Kevin McCarthy, 216 Republicans. So there's unity in that. And this week, we also saw Republicans take on the IRS. We saw Republicans take on our energy crisis and deal with China. We saw them establish new committees. We saw them pass their House rules. Republicans with a small majority are able to get stuff done already in the House. Now what we need is for folks in the Senate to wake up use their individual leverage that they have as senators and try to move forward with a lot of these big ideas. We will, of course, continue to keep our eye on all of this with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, as we typically do, let's end with you telling us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization united in these ideas of economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. Everybody can sign up on our website to become a member for free. The website is clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. All right, thank you. Rule changes resulting from the U.S. House speakership battle means individual members will have more input into the legislative process. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explains. It took several days and 15 different votes before Kevin McCarthy was elected as Speaker of the House last week. But the drama that played out in the House of Representatives over the course of those few days wasn't necessarily entirely about Kevin McCarthy. Instead, the 20 or so Republicans that were opposed to his speakership before eventually falling back in line were raising bigger questions about the way the House operates. It was really a rank-and-file revolt against a top-down process that both Republican and Democratic speakers of the House have used to control Congress in recent years, and the way that played out has implications for how the House will operate for at least, well, the near future. Hi folks, I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. You know, midway through the third day of that long battle to pick a new Speaker of the House, Representative Matt Rosendale, he's a Republican from Montana, he made an innocuous but telling point about the state of Congress. Here's what he had to say. We have had more discussion and debate over the last three days than I have participated in on this floor for the last two years. The stakes of the congressional drama, Rosendale argued, were not merely about which House member will hold the ceremonial gavel, but about a deeper problem with how Congress functions. The process that we use has been dramatically broken. The voices that were sent here to equally, to equally represent each of the 435 districts across this nation have become diminished. This through the consolidation of power into the hands of the speaker and a fortunate few who happen to serve on the rules committee, the debate and the discussion has been all but eliminated and the balance of us are left to vote yes or no. Those are our options. 
This is maybe not a well-known complaint, but it's also not a new one. I think it is somewhat underappreciated. For the past few decades, Congress has shifted away from its traditional process for passing legislation. The process that's, you know, more or less reflected in that famous schoolhouse rock song, I'm a bill, and a bill gets proposed, and it gets marked up in committee and amended, and then finally it gets put to a debate and a vote by the full chamber on the floor. That doesn't really happen anymore. As, as Rosendale explained in those remarks last Thursday, major bills are now mostly drafted by a handful of high-ranking leaders on both sides, then presented to the full house, usually with scant little time to read or process what's in them, and all the rest of the lawmakers get to do is cast a simple up or down vote with few or no amendments allowed. And the result is that leaders can easily push legislation through the House with party line votes. That's good for them, of course. But the downside is that legislators kind of feel like they're not really legislators. So one way to understand last week's Republican revolt against McCarthy is that it wasn't really about McCarthy at all. It was actually a rank and file revolt against the top down process that both parties have been using for years to control the House. But the margins are thin enough right now. Republicans have just a four-seat majority. And that means that a few handfuls of lawmakers who are fed up with the way that process works could use the speaker election as a pressure point to force some change, or at least to try to. And that's what some members of the House Freedom Caucus did last week. Now, much of the media lazily framed the speakership fight as a battle for personal power and a battle of these renegade Republicans against the establishment. But that renegade group of Republicans, the House Freedom Caucus, had made it clear for months what they were actually seeking. All the way back in July, the House Freedom Caucus published a list of demands for the next session, things that they wanted the next speaker to agree to do. And right at the top of the document, the first four bullet points in the document, actually, are a lengthy explanation of why the group believed that power needed to be decentralized away from the speaker's hands. So none of this should be coming as a surprise right now, not to Kevin McCarthy, not to members of the media who spend their time following Congress. But the idea that rank-and-file legislators should get to exert some influence to do, as Rosendale put it, you know, actually have debates on the floor of the House about the best course of action, that's something of a foreign concept in Washington. And that might explain why so many people seem surprised by last week's eruption of democracy. President Joe Biden described what happened in the House last week as embarrassing, but the real embarrassment is what happened last month when Congress passed a 4,000-page, $1.7 trillion spending bill that most lawmakers had little time to read and no real opportunity to influence. Change doesn't occur without good reason, and it's not yet clear that holding up the anointing of the new Speaker of the House will result in any serious changes to the way Congress operates, but that seems like a game worth playing, and it's a game that the House Freedom Caucus might be winning. As part of the rules package that passed this week after McCarthy was elected speaker, Republicans agreed to make major changes to the appropriations process, including standalone votes on each of the 12 annual appropriations bills and also allowing floor amendments to be offered by any lawmaker. Now, that's just the way Congress is supposed to operate, but forcing those changes into the process is actually kind of a radical revolution over the way things have gone for the last several years under both Republican and Democratic speakerships. And look, you don't have to support the full House Freedom Caucus agenda or admire the sometimes off-putting personalities within that group to recognize that they are absolutely right to demand these changes in how Congress works. 
In other words, the fight over the speakership election last week wasn't evidence that Congress is broken. In fact, it might just offer a glimmer of hope that the House can still be fixed. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out more of our coverage of everything going on in Congress and around D.C. this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The passing of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI ends the historic aberration of two popes living in the Vatican at the same time. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has this American Radio Journal commentary. For the world's largest group of Christians, Roman Catholics, the year 2023 brings a big change. In fact, for anyone interested in Christianity and the papacy, which is much of the world actually, Christian and non-Christian, it is a big change. For the first time since the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI in February 2013 and the subsequent election of Pope Francis, there will be, at last, and indisputably, one pope. The key word is indisputably. Unfortunately, there has been debate over whether there are two popes of sort ever since Benedict's resignation. Here's how it happened. On February 11, 2013, Pope Benedict stunned the world by resigning, the first pope to do so in six centuries namely since Gregory Twelfth in the year 1415. He formally announced, quote, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, successor of Peter, entrusted to me by the cardinals on April 19, 2005, in such a way that as of 28 February 2013, at 2000 hours, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter, will be vacant, and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is, unquote. (laughs) Well, that seemed clear enough, right? But unlike Gregory XII in 1415, Pope Benedict did not leave entirely, or so it seemed. Strikingly, he took a very unique title, Pope Emeritus. Now, to some, the Emeritus label elicited a shrug. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, after all, had been a scholar, an academic. Titles like Professor Emeritus are common in that world. But that wasn't all. In fact, Father Federico Lombardi, the papal spokesman, announced two weeks later that Benedict would not only assume the title Pope Emeritus, or Roman Pontiff Emeritus, but would keep the title His Holiness. Hmm. The next day, February 27th, and what turned out to be his final general audience of his pontificate, Benedict made a remarkable statement, saying, quote, The always is also a forever, and there can no longer be a return to the private sphere. My decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. I do not return to private life, to a life of travel, meetings, receptions, conferences, and so on. I no longer bear the power of office for the governance of the Church, but in the service of prayer, I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter." Now that statement from Benedict left some scratching their heads including perhaps a cardinal by the name of Jorge Bergoglio of Argentina, who would be elected as a new pope on March 13, 2013. Five years later, in a September 2018 piece, the New York Times reporter Jason Horowitz observed, quote, Benedict, the first pope to resign in almost 600 years, refused to fully renounce the papacy, taking the title Pope Emeritus and continuing to live in the Vatican. Likewise, Italian scholar Fabrizio Grasso asserted, quote, From a purely logical point of view, it is difficult to maintain that the Pope resigned totally and completely from his own ministry, and we are legitimized in forming this idea precisely because of his own declarations. We are indeed. 
Antonio Sochi, a prominent Italian Vaticanista journalist, dubbed it a non-resignation of the papacy. In 2019, he published a really intriguing book titled The Secret of Benedict XVI. Is he still the Pope? (laughs) Well, in January 2023, with Pope Benedict's death on New Year's Eve, we now have an indisputable answer. No. The Pope is Francis, solo, with no contender. The changing of the guard is complete. What awaits us next is entirely in Pope Francis's hands. The world, Catholic or non-Catholic, will be watching to see what happens next. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kangor. Check out my book, A Pope and a President. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WLSCAM in Loris, South Carolina, WZSKAM in Everett, Pennsylvania, along with WGVYAM in Alta Vista, Virginia. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.